0: So in uh, in Matthew six, we'll start tonight uh, with Matthew six. There are um, there is a one primary Greek word and one primary Hebrew word that means um, that means slave. And if you have an ESV uh, Bible at the beginning of it, you'll have a preface. And so the translators of um, of modern translations and even the King James of 1611, they have a, a preface uh, in in uh, most, uh, most translations to give the reader a sense of how they came to a conclusion for certain words and certain phrases. And do you stick with uh, the New American Standard up until recently, until last year, was the most literal translation to the Greek and the Hebrew. So what, and how this plays out is when I took a couple Greek classes, my teacher said, all right, so what do you guys have for these Greek words? And we translated our sentences and he said, okay, this is what the new American standard would say. And you can compare that with that because it's so word for word, literal translation. However, we all know if you've taken a a language in school that you can't always do a one-for-one translation. There are some words that have a phrase or don't have the exact meaning, so you lose a little bit in translation. So, the challenge with translating scripture is is this accurate to an audience that would they understand it this way? So, when it comes to 1611, the King James takes the word, the Greek word doulos, and I'll mention that word several times. So, I'm just going to tell I don't, you, you don't hear me usually use the Greek words Sunday, or but doulos is a word that is mentioned 150 times in the New Testament. So not a minor usage here or there. It's quite often, it's almost in every book of the New Testament. And I have done a word study on it. And if you want the document with all of the references to this word slave or enslaving is the the verb form or uh, to uh, someone's in bondage or in slavery, um, those are uh, combined over 158 times in our New Testament. And many other times, though, there's a Hebrew word for slave in the Old Testament. And when it, referring to literal slavery like in Exodus, where the Israelites are in slavery and they've got to be rescued from slavery, uh, it usually translates it literally. But the challenge with, uh, and you'll see this in the ESV, um, is what do we do with this word that, how will our readers read this word, doulos, will they think of slavery in our country and even the last two years Mm -hmm. slavery has it just keeps kind of keep bubbling to the surface and we're talking or as a culture talking about reparations for slavery and um documentaries and books and movies that you've probably seen of what the slave market was like in major port cities in our country and it's just appalling and stories of people having to escape slavery and if they were caught consequences and and everything um but all that to say um there is some that when they wrote the the 1611 king james that slavery in that era was only uh chains and um you think in galley slaves rowing a ship or someone that is coming out of uh, in in out of captivity or out of um losing a battle and all the slaves are chained together. And that was the only picture. So the translator said, I don't think that accurately represents. So the King James only has one use of doulos that's translated slave. The ESV, I looked at looked at it and they have a similar hesitancy in their translation uh, to use this word doulos to refer to uh, slaves. And uh, if you've heard me preach Sunday, uh, Sundays, you'll hear me say a few times that the actual word here is slave when it's translated servant. Um, I do that on purpose, um, but I don't do that often because we, I want you to trust the word. I don't want you to doubt the word like, oh, what's the real meaning behind every word? Like, That's not the case with every word. It's the case with this word, though, which is the reason why I'm, I'm doing this study. Um, And the the plan for this study is to go through the New Testament and get a biblical understanding of this word and then how we are to Mm -hmm. self-identify with this word. And we'll see how many in the New Testament apostles and writers of the New Testament begin their books with Paul, Peter, James, Jude, a slave. jesus christ so um and other times and so of the 40 references uh that help us to to wrap our minds around what uh what the the writers original writers of the greek were trying to get across um we have to look at um a dictionary okay so uh the the best most uh Trusted Dictionary is a Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, or short, T, D, N, T. And if you look up this word doulos in there, and in all of its derivatives of the nouns and the other, and the verbs, it, it says this about the meaning of this word. The meaning is so unequivocal and self-contained that it is superfluous to give examples of the individual terms or to trace the history of the group. There's no real No real difference uh, if, and MacArthur says this in the introduction, if the Holy Spirit wanted us to read servant, there were six or so Greek words that he could have used, of which one we know as deacon or diakonos, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't use those six words. He uses this word doulos, which is slave, 150 times in our New Testament. So word choice is important. And so while I'm not wanting us to doubt our Bible, what we're trying to do in this study is to get a more accurate English Bible that hopefully will help you in interpreting passage. And I'll show you one tonight, two tonight that we'll look at uh, as we have time, that hopefully will begin to piece our, our minds together on what is our position and what is our place in the body of Christ in the family of Christ in the slavery of Christ, okay um, Because this is not a one or two obscure references to us being Christ slaves, and it's mentioned book after book after book and concept after concept. Um, we need to we need to learn um, about this. There is another word uh, of which, um, is a household slave uh, in the Greek, and it has the term house in it, um, a slave that lives in a certain house. So if you see a slave out and about in the neighborhood and in Bible times, oh, that is so-and-so's slave who lives with so-and-so. That is the, the connection. Uh, but when it comes to this word doulos, which is more common in the New Testament, the stress is... Um, the um this sl- is on the slaves' dependence on his lord, right? Okay? So that that's a very important concept that the New Testament will put meat on those on that skeleton of dependence on his lord is, I think, at the at the core of what this word is and means to a Greek audience and to uh, and that culture that the Bible was written in, and it's. Not up to us to change the Bible to fit our culture. It's up to us to study the biblical culture and understand the Bible's time. And so, what we can determine in their slave culture is, and I don't know, we don't know from two thousand years ago exactly what it was like, unless we lived in it or unless we were an actual slave or owned slaves and interacted with other slave owners or other slaves. It it would be hard for us to just. I mean, historians have written. Uh, and so it is with uh, slavery from our country, 160 years ago, uh, 70 years ago, uh, what are some similarities? I think uh, what would be similar and uh, why we should probably translate this word slave instead of servant is here is a, a the definition. We have a, a service, which is not a matter of choice, for the one who renders it, which he has to perform whether he likes it or not, because he is subject as a slave to an alien will or someone outside of himself and to the will of his owner. Whoever owns the slave, the slave has to serve that one person. Okay, that's the idea of slavery. That's how it's different than service or servanthood, or even see bond servant uh, translated, which what is a bond servant? It's actually just a slave. They, they made up that word to make it a little softer. Okay. <laughs> but we lose a little bit of the raw, but also of the accuracy when we, we don't, I, I, I fear when we don't translate it slave. And so uh, my goal in this is to help us appreciate this idea. And I said this morning too. if you're wanting a, this idea of slavery like can we talk about something lighter like we just went from lamentations to humility to now slavery (laughs) does it get any worse okay and i think when we when we get a biblical under grasp of our position under christ as our owner it won't be discouraging it'll actually be one of the most freeing things and the most hopeful encouraging joyful things about how you and how in the future you can identify with a world who as soon as you say slavery people get uncomfortable do i talk about this or if someone comes to you and says hey i was a former slave uh, or what do you think of slavery uh, like we don't want to answer those questions today but the bible talks about it a lot and so we can't uh, we can't avoid it I think, in going down a little bit in our um, dictionary uh, of understanding, how would this word have come across to a Greek culture? Okay, you remember uh, the humility, a couple words in humility uh, are, were not looked at as a virtue to a Greek or Roman culture. So when the Christians uh, were told and, uh, to self-sacrificially love each other, which is the agape love, it's almost foreign to the non-Christian community. And there was one word about uh, the um, humility that did not even have any references in, in uh, secular Greek literature, just because it wasn't even a thing. It was like, why would anyone want to live this way? So for someone uh, Reading the New Testament for the first time, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, whatever book, how would this slave language, this over and over use of doulos, which means slave, how would that come across to a Greek audience? And we have a we have someone who has written about it, and I'll, I'll read part of this uh, paragraph. The distinctive feature of the self-awareness of the Greek. Okay, so how are Greeks aware of themselves? Is this thought of freedom? Now, how is that parallel to the United States culture? Are we in bondage or slavery? Oh no! And I said this morning with um our um with our congregation this morning, a lot of people like um, politicians who will guarantee us more freedoms and give us more freedom because we are Americans and we are known as the land of the free. Like this is our identity. Well, that was the Greek identity as well. And for them to think in terms of slavery, like what in their thinking, as well as in an American's mind, why would you want to do that? Like, why would you want to use those terms? It's so antithetical to what the Greeks were trying to accomplish um, in their day. And so it is in our day. See, in in the, the doulos, the free Greek world also sees its own anti-type, like the opposite of what it's trying to do. Um, and think about how often our culture values freedom and individual freedom to where you have to be your authentic self and you're not really free until you can be who you want to be and no one can tell you who you want to be like where do you get these ideas okay this is foreign to a Christian way of thinking but it is becoming the culture in which our kids are growing up and if they think like the New Testament and like we want we God wants us to think about ourselves and self-identify as Slaves of Jesus, or slaves of, Romans 6, slaves of righteousness. What? Like, why would anyone want to identify as slaves? And when Jesus is teaching this concept of slavery and freedom to a Jewish audience in John 8, look at the reaction in John 8 to the Jewish people and saying, we are children of Abraham, we are not in bondage. Jesus says, after he says, I'm the light of the world. And before he opens the eyes of the man who was born blind in the middle of John eight, he says, you, you don't realize that you are in bondage. And later he says that you're blind and you think you can see and you can't. So sin causes us to be in bondage and Christ was teaching them about spiritual bondage. But even while they were serving in a Roman empire they really didn't have political freedom but they were holding on to their religious freedom that they thought they had to. That was their mindset. So in a Pharisee culture, this the text of the New Testament would not be loved and embraced <laughs> either. So in a Greek culture, in a Jewish religious culture, these concepts, we can see a strong reaction against them even in the text of scripture. That doesn't give us... <laughs> the right to be ignorant of them or to change it because our culture is not going to like this idea of slave either. So let's just change it to servant. That seems like twisting of scripture to appeal to an audience that we're actually commanded not to do. So the goal of this study in the next five weeks, we've got three weeks before Thanksgiving, two weeks after Thanksgiving is to do a survey an overview of the verses uh, to get a biblical understanding of our, position as um, as a slave, and hopefully be encouraged, and I think, I know you'll be encouraged with the story that we'll end with uh, tonight, but to get the, the first mention in the New Testament of this idea of slavery is Matthew chapter 6, so you're there in Matthew 6, and servant doesn't match the context of what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 24, And he says, no one can slave away for two masters. We'll just stop right there. And you cannot be owned by two people if you're a slave. You have one master. Everybody knows that. And your job is to do the will of your master, whether you like him or not, whether he's good or bad. Um, You're owned, at at least for a time. Um, And you can't be a slave to two masters and all the Greeks would say, well, yeah, (laughs) but serving two masters, like what? That doesn't quite have the clarity that the word slave here does for either. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot slave away for God and money. And then he talks about what money can't do. It causes us to be anxious and we're always worried about, Um, if we have enough and what we're going to eat and what we're going to clothe ourselves and we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God or seek to slave away for God only. So when God is our master, there's no room for other masters. That's the very first thing that Jesus teaches us about this concept of slave. And um, there were slaves. If you looked at Luke 7, we're not going to look at Luke 7, but the centurion uh, and his servant was, the Bible says in Luke 7-2, the servant or his slave was dear to him. So here is a Roman centurion who's probably known for his roughness, tough, uh, like I'm a, thinking a Marine, okay? And he has slaves, of which one of his slaves is very dear to him. And he goes to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal him, and Jesus does remotely. Um, but there is an element there of, Okay, in, in the culture where uh, there were there were slaves, a lot of the culture was slaves. Uh, there were uh, slaves that were dear to their masters, and their masters took care uh, of them for the most part. Or well, we don't know how many percentage were good and how many were bad, but uh, we do see in Scripture that it was possible to have a good master. So go to uh, Luke uh, 19 and... The the concept that slavery here and a lot of Jesus' stories, uh, we're not going to have time to look at them all, but Jesus' stories, um, that talk about servants translated servants, they're actually slaves. Um, the slave that owed him 10 million dollars or a huge amount of money and had a fellow slave that owed him a hundred dollars, uh, those those two turn that whole story is about slaves okay um so you could be in debt if you to your to your master if you if he owned you and you um weren't um weren't wise with how you handled how your money you also could be sold uh as it was talked about in that and servants can be sold but slaves could be sold because they're property and they could be sold to someone else until all of the debt was paid so when we understand that there's a lot of slave language in the New Testament, it does, I think it clarifies. It just sharpens the focus on on um, our understanding of what God wants us to, to learn and what how he wants us to view ourselves. Luke 19 is a story that if you look um, at verse 28, uh, the title up above verse 28 is the triumphal entry. Triumphal entry happens just days before the crucifixion. And when Jesus takes our place on the cross. So this story, the parable of the 10 minus, is told right before Jesus. Right as Jesus is, as entry. they're wanting to make him king by force. Uh, who, what, who better to serve as king to throw off Rome than someone who could heal us, who can feed us from a little boy's lunch, uh, who can um, raise the dead. And all the things that they've seen Jesus do. They want him to be the physical king, throw off Rome, and Jesus is not going to do that. Instead, he tells them this story. In verse 11, and we, the beginning of parables uh, are great insight to, for us to learn why Jesus tells them. And he tells us, just in one phrase here, he tells a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Like, they thought he is coming to Jerusalem to conquer Rome, throw off Rome, and maybe his disciples thought this. They did think this in Acts 1. They may have thought this, and the crowds thought this. Okay, so this is why the crowds have the palm branches. We celebrate Palm Sunday. They wanted to make him king. Instead, he tells them this story. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. All right. The nobleman in the story is Jesus. All right, I'll tell you straight up front. All right, this is Jesus. And he is, I mean, just days before his crucifixion, he's telling the story that the nobleman's gonna go into a far country, heaven, <laughs> and when he's in heaven, he's gonna receive for himself a kingdom, and he's gonna come back to earth. So, how do people respond to this nobleman? Well, he's calling ten of his slaves, so Uh, they're faithful, or at least some of them are. And he gave them 10 minas. A mina is 100 days wages or about one third of an annual income. So think of your annual income, split it in a third. That's what one mina is. So he's got quite a bit of money here. Let's say it's $20,000 is one mina. Um, And he says to his slaves, um, engage in business, verse 13, until I come so i'm entrusting to you part of my goods and i want you to use those goods now as a slave what is the slave to use these goods for what's it say here in business what did, when jesus came what did he come whose business did he come to do he came to do his father's business so this nobleman which is jesus is entrusting his goods to his slaves who are going to serve him and use Jesus' goods to build the kingdom. So when Jesus returns from this far-off country, heaven, when he comes back, he's going to find his slaves have been faithful with what was delegated to them. Verse 14. But his citizens, so his slaves were, at, at least at first, 10 of them, faithful to him, joyfully serving him, willing to do this, him while he went to a far country but his citizens of which he ruled over hated him and sent a delegation after him saying we do not want this man to reign over us so in popularity polls (laughs) his popularity was very low this is the nobleman this is jesus is this what we see today when it comes to jesus is jesus popularity low Yeah. Is is he gaining in popularity? (laughs) Probably not. Okay, And he he told us not to expect us to be popular or him to be popular because he said that the world hates me, they're going to hate you. And he expected hatred. So he says the citizens are going to hate the nobleman as he goes off into a country. They're going to send a delegation after him and say, hey, don't even bother coming back. We don't want you ruling over us. But the slaves of this king, of this nobleman, are to take what was given them and to do business, to do the king's business, the nobleman's business, and be faithful in that. That was their job. Verse 15. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these slaves uh, to whom he had given the money to be called, and that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him saying, Lord, We'll pause there. Lord is the, the master who owns slaves. So when you see Lord 700 times in the New Testament, that is a master who owns slaves. You wouldn't be a Lord unless you had slaves, like a business owner who didn't have a business. Okay. If, if you're a Lord, you have slaves. So when the slaves come and present to, and it's not serving, you wouldn't call them. Um, it, it was a sign of respect and of submission and authority. Uh, so here he says, when, um, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. So it was a sizable amount of time. He had time to to invest and to do business and make, make money for his master. And the master says in verse 17, well done, good and faithful slave. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas, and he said to him, "You are to be over five cities." Matthew twenty-five. The cross reference of this, I believe, says also, "Well done, good faithful slave." To the second guy, too. And so he uh, another came and said, "Lord, here's your mina, which I have kept laid away in handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you were a severe. You are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, and you reap what you do not sow." And he has a. The crowd probably influenced this guy. He didn't like slaving away for Jesus. And it may be someone like Judas is Iscariot, who appeared to be a slave of Jesus. And then when his true colors came out, he wasn't faithful to Jesus. He didn't have Jesus as his master. He had other masters. He loved money. He loved, um, yeah, betraying Jesus. So. That sounds like this man who was a fake slave, a false slave. And what caused him to be a false slave? Because he didn't know his master. He thought his master was severe. When if this is Jesus, like not not an accurate representation, right? And he says, and you want us to just work for you and slave away for you while you're off doing, getting a kingdom? (laughs) Like, I don't want to do that. And so he didn't. He said... Thank you for what you've entrusted me, these thousands of dollars. I do not want to do your business. I'm putting it aside. That's what he does. So he realized it wasn't his. He wasn't his to do with what he wanted, but he wasn't going to work for his master. So he gave it back to him. And he says, here's why I didn't work for you. He's not a good slave. In fact, he gets these words in verse 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked slave. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. And the other translations don't have a question mark there, but it probably should be a question. It makes makes good sense with it being a question. Like, you really thought I was like this, is what he's saying? And verse 23, why then did you not put my money in the bank? If you didn't want to use my money, at least give my money interest over a long period of time that he was gone. And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. He didn't want to help his master, is what it boiled down to, because he didn't like his master. He, he wanted out of that agreement. Verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, take the minor from him and give it to the one who has 10 minors. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 mines. He already has. It. If you multiply that out, I mean, he's got uh, several years wages now. And he's in charge of 10 cities. And verse 26, Jesus, remember this is a a parable about himself and his kingdom and his slaves in the kingdom. And I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not or hasn't worked for me, that's why he doesn't have anything, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine, so what about the crowd who was sent a delegation so we don't want this guy to reign over us? What's going to happen to them? See... They can try and the world can try their best to not be slaves to Jesus. They will not recognize him as Lord. They will not do what he says. They will not take what is given to them like life and resources and use it for Jesus. Instead, I don't want to give any of my time or money to Jesus, the unsaved mind says and thinks. But his slaves, his faithful slaves are like, I'll do what I can to make you five times or ten times uh, to reproduce, to produce fruit, spiritual fruit. Verse 27, what's going to happen to these people who didn't want him to reign over them? He says, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Like, ah, Like this isn't, you can see why these passages aren't popular. But what happens at Armageddon? The slaughtering of the enemies of Christ when he returns. This is what's going to happen. If you don't have a choice whether or not you're going to serve Jesus, you serve Jesus or you are killed. And this that's your choice. So we'll see as we look through the New Testament, and this story shows us about stewardship and slaves don't really own anything, but when they know their master and they know him well, they want to serve him. And they want to use their resources. What gifts and abilities and time and energy do you have that you can use for your master? You only have one life and you only have one master. Matthew 6 says you can't serve two masters. You can only serve one. Okay. So if you get to choose your master and when your master sets you free, you're free to choose him as your master. So choose him and serve him. And everything that you have, all the resources that you have, are just like these guys. They didn't really own it. They were just stewards. Everything that we have, time, money, resources, everything, is a gift to us from a good master. He's not severe. He wants us to use our resources that he's given us for his kingdom. And when he comes, he's going to evaluate how we spend our time. This is how to think like a slave. Be a good steward um, of, of the resources that God has given us. And if we won't, judgment's is pretty severe. So the, most of this passage is about the good servants and, and the good master, and then the reactions of those who didn't want to serve him. But God, with elections coming up next week, the position of godhood is never up for election. The position of savior of sin is never up for election. Who we're going to worship is never up for election. We are always going to serve Jesus as our master and king. And um, we'll we'll end there and uh, pick it up and...